Hey, we're going to start a new series today, Fail Forward. Hope you're excited about this as I am. I, I can just see all you guys, you're just on the edge of your seats. So I'm, this just fills me up. I, I just tell you what, thank you. Um, can I just tell you right now that our title is a bit misleading. It's not misleading, but my guess is that you're going to go in one direction and I'm going to go in another direction. So let's just head that off right here at the pass. Um, when we think of spiritual disciplines, what, what do we normally think of, right? We, we think of the, the, the Bible studies and the prayer and the Bible reading and Bible memorization and, and, and all these kind of things. These are like the spiritual disciplines, but that's really not what we're going to be studying, looking at in our series this morning. Um, because if you think about it, these aren't really the goal of the Christian life. I know for a lot of people, this, these are the goals, but these are actually, um, they're means to an end. They're, they're, they're means of grace, right? These are tools or ways that God has given us in which, through which, by which we can become what he wants us to become. We, we can achieve the goal that he has for us, the real goal, which, which will then become our goal if we're really wise, and, and that's to make us Christ-like, right? That, that's his, his, his big goal is to make us Christ-like, not necessarily to make us better Bible readers, prayers, things like that. All of that will show itself up as we, right, as we become more and more Christ-like. Um, his goal is to re- for, for us is that we would reflect the one that perfectly reflects our Heavenly Father, right? That's, that's the goal, Christ-likeness. Um, so instead of these, these spiritual disciplines, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be exploring what all of these spiritual disciplines help us do as followers of Jesus Christ, right? So this list is going to help us achieve this list, right? Did you see how they just changed in case you missed it? Um, the, the, these, these four things, these are, these are the real goals. This is where Bible study and prayer and meditation and all those kinds, this is... Why, right? These are the whys. One, to recognize brokenness, right? To acknowledge brokenness. And I, and I, and I know it's really, really easy. You just, yeah, I see brokenness all over. But, but right, that, that'll be the big step for many of us is that finger will point at us and we'll recognize that we're broken too. Um, uh, the second thing is, is forgiveness, forgiving ourselves and forgiving others. Um, that's the goal of all those, the spiritual disciplines. And number three, this is a big one, acknowledging our failure to do neither one of these things very well at times, right? Again, we'll recognize somebody else's brokenness, but we don't always recognize our brokenness. And if we don't recognize our own brokenness, then we're certainly not going to forgive ourselves, nor are we going to forgive anybody else. So, like, the first two things on the list go right down the toilet immediately. If we don't understand failure, scriptural failure. And then and finally, the spiritual disciplines all lead us, really, like I said before, to Christ-likeness. And you're like, well, what is Christ-likeness? That's, that's like a really long, weird word. Well, if you think about your baptisms, this helps me. Think about your baptisms. With Christ, you died to yourself, right? Like he did on Good Friday. He went into the grave, died to sin, died to selfish, any of his own desires. And we do the same thing. We, with Christ, we die to that old creation, Right, the old way of life, we die to it. And then like Christ three days later, and for us, maybe 10 minutes, I don't know when it was for us, um, we rise again with Christ to a radically new life, a radically new perspective on life, radically new goals and purposes for our life. And that, that life, it needs all these new goals and purposes and values because it, it's the new creation. The, the deal is, again, the kind of the big picture is we, in, in Christ, 
Um, in his incarnation, he introduced this new creation. The problem is this new creation is still existing in the midst of the old creation, and the two don't play along very well, right? So our job is to, to be 100% live in the new creation and everything that we do, but in the midst of the old creation. And the idea is that the new creation, because we're the body of Christ, as we spread and as we love, the new creation slowly takes over and does away with the old creation. That, that's kind of the big picture goal behind all this. So for many Christians, and here, here's the problem, for many Christians to fail forward is an oxymoron, right? I'll, I'll, hopefully, I, I know there's a lot of military people. I don't want to make you mad, but military intelligence, that's the one that I always heard of. And so I don't know if I'm going to hear an amen or a boo Anybody military intelligence, oxymoron? No? Okay, that laugh worked well enough. Right, the terms are mutually exclusive, right? You can't have one and have the other. You can have only one or the other. Sin and holiness for a lot of, they simply don't mix. Faith and failure, they can't mix. That, that, that's impossible. But then we look at Romans 8.28 and passages like Romans 8.28. Let me read this. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes, and all things include all your failures, all your, what we call in the modern age, all your mistakes and slip-ups and what the Bible calls iniquities and transgressions and sin, right? We've we got different terms. Um, but all these things. That, that's, that's all the horrible stuff. That's everything that we've ever done wrong. This passage seems to say, despite all of my stupidity, God still works for my good. That doesn't, that doesn't equate for a lot of people. It, just, it, doesn't, it doesn't work in their minds, and yet that's the paradox. That, that's, 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 the gospel, that's the gospel message. My problem, my, my fear is that this passage, for many people, it doesn't ring true. Right? It's not even probable. More often than not, for most people, this is, this is a mirage. This is, this is an empty promise that Scripture gives. We all try, and nobody succeeds. My fear is that many do not believe this, or at least they haven't found it to be true in their own lives, or even plausible as they look at the mess that they've made in their lives like this. There's no way God's going to clean this up. I'm going to have to live with this forever. That's just the way it is, and nothing I can do about it. But if we understand, excuse me, if we misunderstand scriptural failure, that misunderstanding prevents us from moving forward in our spiritual growth. And failing forward literally becomes impossible. See, for many Christians, either one of two issues, and we've got a lot of issues, but we're going to name two of them this morning. Uh, for many Christians, either they believe that they don't fail, that they can't sin, Right? I've been sanctified entirely, and that's impossible and, and because Christ is in me, and they, they cannot accept the fact that sin and holiness can sometimes be together. And, and so they deny. They just uh, they deny. We, we, I don't sin. I don't fail. Which, you know, just, just experience tells us that, that that can't be in Scripture. Romans 3.23, all of sin falls short of the glory of God. We it just kind of falls apart if you look at it too closely, right? Some people believe this. And the other half of struggling, I think, Christians that deal with this issue is they believe that they sin all the time, nonstop, right? They, they believe that they, and I, and I don't think it's true, but they sin 
continuously in word, thought, and deed, right? That's just, that's just their, they're slaves to sin. And I want to tell you this morning that neither one of these is true. Neither one of them is true, right? If, if it's true that we continue, continuously sin in word, thought, and deed, well, that negates a good chunk of the letter that we're going to look at to the Christians in Rome this morning, and it negates a good part of the entire New Testament, right? It just, it's a completely 180-degree opposite message of the gospel, and both of these beliefs will make all forward progress impossible. Worst-case scenario, worst-case scenario, they bring death to the promised new life, the new creation that's just budding in the life of a new believer. It, it just kills it. It just it kills it. If we don't understand scriptural failure, new life becomes immediately aborted, dead life. That's not God's plan for us. That's not where he wants to leave us. The result for too many Christians is that the best that the Bible, the best that Jesus can offer is be patient and trust in your justification by faith, right? Be patient and have faith in your justification by faith. The raging internal conflict with sin will cease as soon as you die. It's like, whoo And I, I'm here to tell you, there are a lot of people that are in this boat. This is, this is their plan. I'll find a rock. I'll stay out of trouble. I won't mess God's plan up because anything I do is going to mess it up anyway. So I'll just leave it up to him, and I'll just remain under a rock. And I, like Jesus, just don't lose my reservation. Right? That's my big concern is I won't mess anything that you're working on, and you don't mess up my future. And that's the deal. And I think God wants more for us. And I think Jesus died for more than that. That's crazy. This message is the exact opposite of Paul's message to the Christians in Rome, right? In his letter, we call it the book of Romans. And in fact, the message of the entire New Testament. That message is that the atonement, remember all four parts of the atonement, right? The incarnation, the life and teaching of Jesus, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and Pentecost. Got to remember Pentecost. That's huge. All four parts should give us collectively, Pentecost, remember, should give us victory over the power of sin and the power to live life now in the new creation, right? The new creation that Christ ushered in in his lifetime and will complete, bring to completion when he comes back a second time. According to Paul and the rest of the New Testament, Christians as a whole should be better people. Right? More loving, more forgiving, more just. They should just be more peaceful people. Not, not this, this description shouldn't describe us in heaven, right? The goal is this description should dry, describe us here on earth also. And as we move toward glorification, as we move toward our heavenly home, we get better and better at these kind of things so that we just slide into our heavenly home and we're like, this is what I've been pray, praying for. This is what I've been preparing for. This is what I've been doing, right? This is awesome. Now it's complete. This is fantastic. Now, I, and I say as a whole for two reasons. It's very easy to find a good Hindu, a good Hindi, a good Muslim, a good, you know, any of these other religions or a good atheist for that matter and a bad Christian. In the same way, it's good or easy to find a, a bad Christian and a good any one of these things. So I like this word collectively because that really ties into the whole idea of the atonement that we are all in this together. And God's plan was never that any one of you should have to do this alone. That, that was not part of his plan. A lot of people have to do it alone. I recognize that. But that's not part of the plan. That's not the best that God had for us, but it's what some of us will have to live with. 
just the way it is. And the second reason that we, we throw in that word as a whole, again, because it testifies to the atonement, right, the Pentecost connection. So Scott McKnight in his book, A Community Called Atonement, writes that the up-and-coming generations don't think, remember the old bumper sticker, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven? Right? He, he, he's been talking with a lot of younger generation, and they don't like that bumper sticker. They don't think it's funny. They don't appreciate it at all. Their opinion, according to Scott McKnight, is that Christians, yeah, they get it. We're not perfect, but we should at least be different. They you should at least be different than everybody out there. I mean, that's the claim, both scripturally and the way y'all talk. Y'all should be better. So this morning, by way of one particular passage that I think has stumbled, had made people stumble for ages, um, and I think it's still, people struggle with it, and, and, and some passages all around it that kind of help flesh out this idea that I want to be driving at this morning. Um, so we're going to look at this passage. I want to look at how it trips us up, and I want to look at the results if we don't address this misunderstanding of scriptural failure, and then the results if we do get a better grip on this idea of scriptural failure. So I want to jump right in. Here's the passage in question. It's from Romans chapter 7. I'm going to start in verse 14. If you got your Bibles, um, you can, I'll be in 6, 7, and 8, book of Romans, uh, but we also have it up there on the screen. Um, so this is the passage, the one that people come across and just kind of flips them out because it just, it, it's, like, it's like the opposite of everything else the New Testament is talking about. Paul writes this, starting in verse 14, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. Sold as a slave to sin, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Continuing, 17 and 18, As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. It's getting sinister here. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. So this good can't be in there, because if it was, I'd be able to carry out what I want to do. Right? Making sense. Continue. Verse 19. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. Now, let's just kind of stop for a moment here. For many Christians, they read all this and they, and they go, and this is the exact opposite of what, what I want you to, to respond. It's like, this guy gets it. Paul understands my predicament. He, he knows the struggle, so why bother? Just crawl under the rock and wait till it's time to die. I mean, this guy gets it. He, he, he gets it. See, it would appear from this passage that despite lots of spiritual disciplines, like we've gone over them to death, right, the Christian life will be marked by an unavoidable and vicious conflict where sin remains an insurmountable barrier to victorious living. And again, so why, why bother? Why, if, this is, if this is what I'm going to get after I attend church every day and I pray and I read and I read and I'm... Why? Why bother? Here's the problem with this interpretation. None of it jives with the rest of what Paul writes, either before this passage or after this passage, right? Either two different people are writing, or he's schizophrenic, or he, he has a terrible memory, and he's not the guy you want to follow because he's given two different ideas here. But that's really not the case. In fact, he is, his, 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 his message is incredibly unified. I want to show you how that, that gets unified. Um, 
Again, I, I, let me just show you some of the other passages before this idea that sin is unavoidable. It's going to be a conflict for my whole life, and I will never get a leg up on it. I will never get victory. I just want to show you some passages all around it just so that you can go, now, wait a minute, what, what, what's going on here? I'm going to start. And, uh, first one I'm going to show you is from chapter 6, verse 4. It says this, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Right? That is screaming no to Romans 7, 14 through 21. No, that, that's impossible. And I continue. This is in verse 6 and 7. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Does this sound like somebody who is caught up in a forever struggle and is always losing the struggle? And if you don't answer no, I'll just say no. This does not sound like that guy. 13, 12 and 13, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Now, like, if, if Paul is saying this and he knows it's not true and he knows that the struggle, he's a liar. Right? Or he's portraying a God that we don't want to worship. This isn't worth worshiping. Therefore, do not let your sin reign, let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Okay, so... Hopefully, wait, wait, let me just go one more. That was before. Now let's just jump to chapter 8. I'm only going to do one verse here. Chapter 8, this is after the passage. It says, therefore, this is uh, Romans 8, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free. What about this struggle, Paul? This says, I've been set free from the law of sin and death. And, and it continues through chapter 8. So we've got to ask ourselves, which is it, Paul? Right? Which one are you saying, Paul? Are we freed from sin or are we doomed to sin continuously in word, thought, and deed? Because you seem to be saying both, Paul. <laughs> where, where are we going to land here? Like I said before, answering yes to either one of these questions or beliefs makes all forward progress impossible in your spiritual journey. If you buy into the idea that because you're a Christian that you are free from all sin, can I just tell you right now, you're going to end up a neurotic wreck. Right? You're, that balancing act that you're going to have to live, is, it's going it, to destroy you if it doesn't make you a liar. It, it's going to do one of the two. It, it, it's the only place you can go. Right? And, it, and if you believe that you're endlessly enslaved to sin, right? again, you might as well just live under a rock till God calls you home because nothing you do will make a difference. And anything that you do, it'll probably make the wrong difference because we're absolute basket cases. Again, so you're probably aware of the solution to this apparent contradiction. I just kind of gave everything away there. You've just never heard what it's called or that Paul uses it quite regularly, and you probably recognize when he's used it, and I'm going to show you when he's used it, and it's very recognizable. Um, but a lot of times he'll slip into this technique and then slip out of it, and, and for us in the modern age, we don't notice it, but if you were a Greek educated person, you would notice that he's slipping in. This is what it's called. It's called prosopropia. Yeah, prosopropia. And this is what he does. It, it's the idea 
that when you adopt the voice of another person in order to project onto that person something unfavorable, right? It's kind of speech in character, okay? Now, his best example is this from chapter 6. And I'm going to use his example from chapter 6 the same way that Paul uses it because I'm going to try to debunk that first false idea that Christians can't and don't sin, right? So in this, this, this chapter 6, this prosopopeia, uh, and again, sometimes, like in this example, um, it, it's very obvious, but throughout his writing, again, he slips in and out of it without warning. So in chapter 6, he uses this, this technique when he wants folks to examine a ridiculous idea, and the ridiculous idea is this. And again, a ridiculous idea that some might erroneously believe, so he uses this technique to help people explore what might be a silly idea that they've got in their heads, Right? And the idea is that because of God's grace, sin isn't a big deal anymore, right? The first question he asks, and this is when he enters that other voice, so what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase, right? That's not Paul's question. He's speaking in character. He's speaking, right? Makes sense. And, and again, he gives them a blistering no, right? And then a bit later in verse 15, he does it again. What then? Shall we sin because we're no longer under the law but grace, right? And you know the answer, right? By no means. That's crazy talk. And so by the way of prosopopeia, Paul has shown that God is hugely, hugely concerned with our moral life, our moral character, and our moral development. It's not a, hey, you're saved, grace is God, you just go do whatever you want, it just doesn't matter. That, no, not at all. And Paul uses this technique to kind of put that idea into the heads of these people and to get them to see that this is, that's crazy talk. Right? He is hugely concerned with our moral character, but maybe not in the way and to the degree that many of us imagine. So I'm going to speak very carefully here. Don't put words into my mouth and don't run off with any of these ideas before you give me time to finish. See, we have this mentality that God plays kind of tit for tat. Right? For each sin, for each failure, it's an all or nothing proposition. Right? I'm going to bless you or I'm going to curse you right now because you called your little brother an idiot. I'm going to mess up the rest of your day. If you had just called him something nice, man, I would have had your mom cook pork chops for dinner. Right? We got this idea that for every action, there's like a God reaction. Right? For everything we do, there's going to be a blessing or a curse, a temporal, you know, in this world, reward or a punishment, right? Eternal heaven or hell, pass or fail. Like when we live under all this pressure, this horrible pressure, like, and so we'll pay attention to the Big Ten, right, and claim that we don't sin, but that we never notice. We never notice the patterns of indifference or outright hostility that we show towards maybe Mr. and so-and-so, Mrs. so-and-so down the street or, you know, at work or whatever. And we, since we didn't kill them, we didn't lie to them, we didn't, you know, I don't sin, but God's looking at you going, but you treat them like garbage. Honey, that's sin. I've never used the word honey before. I'm so sorry. That <laughs> felt weird coming out of my mouth. Um, like my coffee waitress. Um, so that's the picture that Paul paints of sin. Patterns of self-centeredness over the one-offs. Right? God's like, he's okay with the one-offs as long as you don't make that your pattern. That, that, that your goal, like, like you want to live there. Describing the tension between sin and holiness in the Christian life, this is what Paul says. This is in verses 12 and 14. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. Here's kind of the idea here. It's kind of like an alcoholic. 
who decides that they love alcohol so much that although they swear they won't drink, you know, too much, they just decided to be a bartender, right? They, they just love the smell. They love the atmosphere of the bar. No harm, right? Because they swear they're not going to. And it's a disaster for the alcoholic. You know it's going to be. And everyone around him who counted on his word. This is the picture that Paul paints of the struggling Christian. Someone who says they want this or that, but then they do everything to sabotage this or that, or they do nothing to promote it. Like, I want to be a good person, but I'm not going to do a doggone thing. God, it's up to you. Make me a good person. Let me continue, verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to disobedience, which leads to righteousness. Aren't you aware of this stuff in 17? But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, past tense, the writer made that super clear. I think y'all heard that, right? Though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching. Notice that pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Now, again, everybody understands this. When you submit to something, whatever it is, it becomes your master, right? We, we recognize this. Um, and it might be money, it might be fame, health, prestige, reputation, whatever. It rules your heart, but again, it doesn't necessarily rule every single decision you make. Right? You will find somebody who's all into health, and you notice them at the donut shop on Friday morning, like, what are you doing here? And you've got six donuts, and you're by yourself. It's like we're not robots, right? Some decisions will be at odds with the one true desires of our heart. It's natural, it's human, it's normal. We're not robots. The same holds true for our spirituality. Bad people still do good things, and good people still do bad things. That's just the reality of the world, regardless of their chosen kingdom. Right? One writer put it like this. The text does not say that sin dies to the believer, because that's what we want to happen. That's what all of us believe. If I become a Christian, somehow the Holy Spirit will make sin die in my life. Like, just take care of it, Holy Spirit, because I, I can't deal with it. But that's not what the text is implying. The text is saying that it's the believer who has to die to sin. It's a conscious decision. It's a wholehearted decision. It's 100%. It's not a 50%. It's not like I'm going to keep this toe in this side and I'm going to keep this toe in this side because it's not, it's not going to work. The early church father, Origen, put it this way. To obey the cravings of sin is to be alive to sin. It's not, to, it's not like the one-off, oh, man, I shouldn't have screamed at them. Recognize later on, that was horrible of me, right? But it's, it's obeying the craving. Ooh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call them also, and I'm going to let them have it. And then I'm going to send them an email. And then I'm going to send them six texts at 3 in the morning, right? That's, that's obeying the cravings of sin. When you yell at them because you had a bad day, don't beat yourself up because God's not either, right? The cravings of sin or to succumb to its will, this is to die to sin, Here's the fact of the matter. The sin continues its attempt to dominate the life and conduct of the believer. But it can only dominate when we make it its master. Let me say that again. It can only dominate when we consciously make it our, our master. Right? We, we all mess up. We all sin. We'll all fail at some point or another in this walk with Christ. Um, Martin Luther has a story. It's about lust. It works for me for all sin. He says, I, I can't stop a bird from landing on my head. Right? The one-offs, the, we yelled, we did whatever. We, we violated a known law of God, and we did it on purpose. 
thing landed on my head. But he says, I can stop that thing from building its nest. Right? That's when you succumb to the cravings where you just say, you know what? Hopefully I'll get away with it, but I'm just going to live this life over here. I'm going to profess this life and hope for these results. I'm just going to go ahead and live this life over here. The road to Christ-likeness doesn't mean that one will never serve again, but that the believer is not a slave to sin. It doesn't have to live a lifestyle that sin is bound to visit. It's the alcoholic side. Eh, I can be a bartender and it'll be cool. So I think that we can take off the table right now the idea that Paul or the Bible ever claimed that Christians can or won't sin. That's, let's, just, let's just take that off, right? Let's go back to Paul and his propopopsia in chapter 7. I say that really, really fast because I can't pronounce it. The dead giveaway that this is what he's using is this. He's describing this raging, unbeatable battle between good and evil in his soul, but we quickly recognize it's not his soul. And the dead giveaway is the concluding part of chapter 7 passage I read you earlier. I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to start in chapter 8, verse 21. This is kind of his concluding thought. He's been living, he's been voicing the dilemma of somebody who doesn't know Christ, okay? And he's still voicing this other person. Paul's not speaking here, although Paul's writing here, right? You follow me. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, raging, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. And again, here's the reveal that Paul isn't talking about himself, but rather talking about the person who hasn't found the grace of forgiveness yet, right? What a wretched man I am. All of that, starting at verse 14, literally, what a wretched man I once was. What a wretched person who's living this belief, this Christian lifestyle. What a wretched existence. Stop it. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me from all of that stuff that we read as just give up. <laughs> Nothing's going to work. You, 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 all right? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul is clearly voicing the dilemma of the one who has not yet placed their faith in Christ. This is the one who's about to give up. Right in verses 14 through 20, that's, that's a portrait of the person who's about to give up, just crawl under a rock and pray to the end comes. Right? They haven't seen that the law is good for moral guidance, but it's really lousy at saving you. It's, it's horrible at saving you. And so I think we can also take from the table immediately this idea that Paul or the Bible claims that we're hopelessly enslaved to sin continuously in word, thought, and deed. We're not. We're not. We're simply not, but we can. We can truly believe everything else that Paul and the rest of the New Testament writers testify to. And we can live victoriously even now before our bodies are glorified and made actually in behavior and heart perfect. So as we prepare for receiving communion this morning, um, ensemble is going to be coming up, getting prepared. Understand that the law can only condemn, right? The law can only condemn. The law says this to you, and I, I kind of want you to take this in. Wrong, 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 wrong again, wrong, wrong. That's all the law can do. 
And if all we buy into is the law, then that's all our neighbors hear. Wrong. Nope. Nope. Missed it. Wrong. Do you know what happens to the heart of a person who hears only wrong, 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 and wrong again? Do you understand what happens to that person's heart? It gets cold. It gets angry. It gets incredibly unforgiving. It becomes simply, simply a, a rock. But forgiveness makes room for wrongs. Forgiveness changes everything. Wrongs and sins can no longer condemn us in Christ Jesus. Forgiveness also makes room for healing from those wrongs. Wrongs and sins are no longer our master, Jesus is. Now, whether you're the condemning, pointing finger in this room, you just have to judge for yourself. Right, because you think you never sin. Or you're the one who everyone else is pointing their fingers at because you recognize it too, you're kind of a hot mess. The table is open for you this morning. Maybe this morning is time to not only let God forgive you, but maybe it's time for you to forgive somebody else. And it might, might not be a person, it might be a group of people, might, I don't know what it is. But from what I read, if you want to be set free from condemnation, then you have to set others free from condemnation. Those people that you have decided they're not worth it, and you don't like them, you don't like what they think or believe, until you bury that feeling, you will never live a new life. Until you experience true forgiveness and extend it to that person who you hate, you will never experience power. Forgiveness is the release of that power. Father, I thank you right now for whatever work you, you just started because somebody reached up finally. Or maybe it's a work that you're continuing or maybe it's a work that you're bringing to a beautiful completion. I, I don't know where these people are on their road, on their journey, Father, but you do. And so, Father, I, I thank you right now for wherever they are that, that somebody received forgiveness this morning, and because of that, they're going to forgive somebody else. And then the darkness is beaten back. Death is defeated. Father, thank you for your Son who showed us the way and for your Holy Spirit who reminds us non-stop that this is the way forward, that Jesus is the way. Father, we pray all these things in his name. Amen.